colonial. We have to unlearn. Shall we begin? Let's begin now. Somebody ought to do something about that. What would Quay say? Is this the Oppression Olympics? Decolonization. It's the data. The revolution will not be televised because it is starting with infants and toddlers. Welcome to Get on the Early Childhood Bus, where we break down everyday issues affecting our youngest children. We're going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to go. So get on the bus and be prepared for a journey that takes us down a path that examines our systems and applies child-centered solutions to give kids what they need to thrive. I am your driver, Penny Smith, from Erickson Institute in Chicago. Each episode will be joined by our co-pilot on this bus, Christina Pasiones-Sayas, who also works with Erickson and happens to be a state senator in the Illinois Senate. To take you on this journey, we have three guiding questions that will help us get to where we need to go. Where did we find the baby this week? This centers around a topic that needs our attention and needs to center the well-being of a child. Who are the fire starters or firefighters? This question helps us think about who is accountable for the issues and who can help provide solutions. Whose worldview am I centering? This reminds us to always look at this issue from a variety of perspectives and not just our own because there's an ocean of experiences out there and everyone's is different. So now that we've mapped out our path, let's hit the road and get this bus moving. We continue our conversation on health equity from our last episode, but this time from a legislative worldview. Today, Senator Christina Pasiones-Sayas and I will talk with Illinois Senator Omar Aquino about legislation that can increase better health outcomes for Illinois communities. Senator Aquino is an alumnus of the Early Childhood Leadership Academy at Erickson Institute, which offers programs for leaders that enhance their capacity to influence early childhood policy and find the baby in their work. Take it away. Senator, super excited to be with you again, Um, although I get to see you more frequently now that we are official colleagues. I'm really excited about this discussion because we've been speaking with other members of the General Assembly as it relates to the Black Caucuses for Pillars legislative package. There were some pretty instrumental pieces that came out of it, particularly around health. Um, And I know that this is an area, too, that you watch closely and advocate very ferociously about. And so I wanted you to give us a little bit of a sense of the one piece that you really championed around the healthcare and hospital transformation, and also how this fits into the larger constellation of the health pillar. First and foremost, thank you so much for for having me on. Uh, Honored. I've always loved working with Erickson with the Early Childhood Leadership Academy. It's really been a great tool for me to do the work that that we do. You know, what the Black Caucus did to stand up and, you know, and say, like, look, we have to address these 
historic inequities, this systemic racism that just has been occurring. But like, what can we do as a, as a state and as a general assembly to try to address these things? It's because of the fact that us in the Senate had changed our, um, our rules, we were able to have uh, virtual hearings. And so they presented their, their four pillars, you know, and, and really had discussion more than anything. It wasn't like they were presenting a, a bill and we we're trying to rifle through it, but more to say, how do we get to the root causes of these, these things in, in, in whatever area that we can, you know, make change, what can we do? And so the, the one aspect that I've really worked on is a lot of the work that gets done in Springfield and especially the, the, the biggest stuff, budget, you know, healthcare, all these things is not by the entire General Assembly. It is really by a few folks that are focusing on these issues and get in a room to really uh, hash some things out. And so you have to earn that, that trust and that privilege sometimes to be in those conversations. And so early on, I identified two areas where Latinos and Latinas weren't in the, in the conversation. One was for the overall budget. The Senate back then, Senate President Cullerton at the time, had this definition of, of, of budgeteers, specific people that would work on the budget. And when I looked at those budgeteers, look, I trusted them. I liked them. They were great colleagues. But you know, I identify as Latino. The district I, I work in is a majority Latino. For the last two years, I've been the, the, uh, the uh, chair of the Latino caucus on the Senate. Um, we had no members. And then secondly, there's a thing called the Medicaid work group um, that focused on Medicaid issues. And look, Medicaid is one of our biggest, if not the biggest expense that we have in our general revenue. So it's it's intertwined with the, the conversation with the budget. So then again, I made the note that there's no Latinos or Latinas in that. And so as they say, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And so I sort of <laughs> said, made that complaint. And I was told like, well, we don't, you're right. Uh, I see that now. Uh, if you want, you, you, you do the work. And so I was tossed into the deep end uh, and I've been doing that work since then, but uh, specifically this year and with, with healthcare, we've been working on transformation. So originally it, last year we voted on having a fund. We were gonna put in $60 million each year for at least three years on, on the general revenue. It would be matched by Medicaid, by the feds to end up being actually 150 million as a fund that would transform. Initially it was hospitals. We've expanded to say transforming Healthcare, because healthcare really is much more than just your hospital setting. There's so many things that go into someone's health. Uh, more than 50% of, of your health outcomes are actually determined by social determinants of health that are separate to healthcare things uh, like education and, and access to healthy foods, good paying job, your living situation. So we had that conversation going for some time. We voted out that fund in, in May. And then since May till now, we've been voting on how would that transformation actually look? What would that program be? And how can we make sure that those, those communities that needed additional assistance and investment would get that? Simultaneously, then the Black Caucus, though, had their pillar of healthcare. And we're really trying to address these things on an even more macro level of, of looking at taking a bunch of folks' uh, previous bills and really putting it as a, a package of trying to transform healthcare on, on an even uh, larger level. So they looked at maternal mortality, morbidity rather, excuse me. Uh, they looked at oversight of the MCOs, uh, which is managed care organizations, to kind of keep that simple, basically the state privatized uh, Medicaid in a certain way of for-profit insurance groups 
are managed care organizations that run the Medicaid program. So having more oversight on, uh, on them, having a sickle cell uh, prevention committee commission that would bring up, making sure that the monies that are spent on a healthcare front had the ability for BEP programs so that minority folks and women and, and those living with disabilities had opportunities to be able to get business from the healthcare system. And then we as a Medicaid uh, work group worked on specifically the the transformation thing, it ended up working together. Um, we were able to pass uh, the, the hospital transformation fund, which again, would go to communities that haven't had access to quality healthcare based on historical, cultural, economic barriers. And so there's going to be some monies that partnerships can apply for. Let me, let me draw out a couple things. One, when we think about health and when we think about early childhood, you know, health is it's paramount, foundational. And and I'd like you to kind of th- reflect being a early childhood leadership academy alumnus, some of the um download that we provided you with in terms of like brain science and secure attachment and trauma and stress. I'm just kind of curious about what kind of opportunities, particularly in this healthcare and hospital transformation um, legislation, like say I am a recipient, I'm a community-based health clinic. What, what can I do with that? You know, what is that, what is the implementation of that particular legislation kind of look like? Let's do a little bit of like dreaming around that. And perhaps how could we even be deliberate around early childhood and supporting those early years? So ultimately, the hospital transformation bill is one that is supposed to offer a way to help design better care and better outcomes in distressed communities. And so specifically in those communities that through systemic racism, really don't have the ability to have quality health care access in their communities. And so what this bill attempts to do is to allow for partnerships not only by hospitals, systems, and FQACs, so clinics and other uh, healthcare providers, but with other community-based organizations to figure out as a community themselves, if we get an investment in our community, what are the things that we can try to address to get better outcomes in healthcare? Let's use an example. I represent Humboldt Park. Humboldt Park nationwide has a huge issue in terms of uh, type 2 diabetes. To alleviate that problem, it's not just making sure that folks can afford their insulin. There's so many things before that. It's like, what is the access to healthy foods in that community? How are people able to afford that food? So do they have a good paying job or not? Are people choosing between medication, rent, and food? So what are those other social determinants that are impacting somebody's health? And so what I love about this Hasbro transformation, it allows for communities to try to answer that question themselves. Instead of having these, these programs of like these superheroes, sort of like, you know, Superman coming in and saying like, hey, I know what's best for you all. This is what we're going to do. We're going to transform this and you're going to see results. Rather, it says like, no. Look, we have these these organizations that are rooted in the community. How do we together with those same folks? Like ultimately, it's the folks that we're trying to get better outcomes for. What are what are the problems that you see, and what do you believe and know that could be the solutions? And how can we, as a state, then say, "Hey, we're going to give some monies to sort of 
kind of run sort of small pilots to see mm-hmm. if these work out? And then if so, then how do we replicate those wins and successes that we hope to see in those outcomes in other places uh, throughout the state? When you talk about empowering the communities to you know, make decisions themselves, what kind of data or what kind of supports can we provide to these communities to be able to make those decisions so they're informed? To answer your question, just simply the risk and reach report that you all put together and published last year is exactly one of those tools that our communities need. And what, what we are hoping to do as a state is to replicate some of that. Like you all went on a ground level getting that information. I think that it's so important. We identify problems and issues and other things that impact those those, those areas and how to address that. Um, I just want to go back real quick to say, like, in terms of all these things that I said about social determinants of health and having people and communities come with solutions to things that they're living through, where the baby is, per se, in, in, in this conversation, is that, look, we live in a city and a state that depending on where that baby is born, their access to things, their opportunities, all the data shows that you can live in one zip code and live two miles away and another, another baby lives in a different one. And even their, their life expectancy is completely different. And they just literally live blocks away from each other, a couple, one zip code away. And, and it's, it's getting to that. It's the saying like, no matter what situation you're born into, no matter what zip code you're born into or whatnot, that in this state, we're going to try to make the playing field a bit fairer and say like, hey, if you need additional supports to, to thrive and get to that place, that we do that. We, we make those decisions. Uh, but we, we also don't do it in a way that we're saying we know what's best for folks. To say like, look, communities, people that live through stuff should be the ones determining what decisions that they want to make to providing their, their babies and their children opportunities, we as a state shouldn't get in the way. And anytime we see policies that are keeping people down or getting in the way or making things more, we have to undo those things. You mentioned that this is these are pilots. I, I would imagine this is over a period of several years, right? Yeah, so hospital transformation is going to be funded for three years. In the bill itself, though, the intention is for over five years. So we're putting in GRF 60 million, hoping to get about 90 million match from the feds. So it'd be a $150 million program. Then of that $150 million, um, there are going to be partnerships because we're really big on making sure that we're partnering together, can sort of tap into certain pools of, of, of monies. So safety net hospitals and, and critical care hospitals, they have certain pools, but there's also uh, pools that would address like behavioral health and, and other things. And so you can potentially be a community that can, in, in a program that can tap into different pools, you know, simultaneously. The, the reason that there's sort of these pilots and it's to allow for what we like to call local control. These communities can kind of have the flexibility to self-determine what would may work best in their community. Uh, the other thing is also it's about outcomes. So we, so we want to make sure that these designs are actually getting the outcomes that we're hoping to see. And so if there needs to be changes from year to year, those that have applied can, can make those adjustments. That's super helpful because you know what? The fact that the objective is for this to be community driven, community d- determined, right? A connection I immediately see just in kind of concept 
is in early childhood, we talk about being child-centered. And we, we talk about setting up our environment in an early learning space to be child-directed. I think the other piece in terms of outcomes, right? You know, everything that we do in early childhood is essentially to set up a foundation for a life course where ultimately a child can be set up to live up to their greatest potential. And it seems like this particular initiative is really trying to provide communities with the tools, i.e. the resources, to bring together a variety of stakeholders and the space, you know, to be able to address some of our chronic issues. The last piece around this, I think that is is really key and that also connects a lot to the work that we do in the Early Childhood Leadership Academy is addressing root causes. We got to stop with the Band-Aids we have to, you know, really drill down and be very deliberate about naming our problems so we can be more precise about the solutions that we design to specifically address those problems. And, you know, that has been a very deliberate stance that we've taken at Erickson and in the Early Childhood Leadership Academy with respect to how we are supporting early childhood leaders as well as policy leaders to be very deliberate in their work around early childhood to understand the process of advancing a policy proposal from idea to execution to implementation, evaluation, and so on and so forth. And so I think that's really what makes this legislation incredibly powerful and what a great opportunity it can present to really think through the the human trajectory and how these health spaces can support that. And I mean, I always love about your background is that you worked for the Department of Aging. So you saw the other side of what care and support looks like. You know, now you have the bookends, right? You've got the early childhood grounding and you've got the aging grounding. Um, And I think that really helps to kind of bridge so that we're not just being siloed and we're thinking through the entire life course. I would like you to unpack just a few of the jargon terms. I have become sensitive to those because of my uh, dear friend Penny, because she says I speak in jargon all the time. FQHC. This is, I also like not just jargon, but uh, acronyms. So the state is filled with acronyms that I I need like a, a tool for them because I don't know them all, but FQHC, Federally Qualified Health Center. They're essentially are the, the, the local clinics that many people that are underinsured, uh, lack insurance. Uh, it's the lifeblood of folks to go um, get health care in our communities outside of going directly to the hospital. And so those are the clinics that get federal assistance to serve as, uh, as FQHCs. We have a lot of great ones in our communities. And then the last one is GRF. General Revenue Fund, which is basically the state of Illinois has an overall budget of about 80-ish billion dollars overall. The GRF is, that's what people think about when we talk about our budget. It's the discretionary funds that we have from the revenues, the taxes that we tax all you all. We all pay taxes. We pay into the fund. And then the General Assembly gets to have some discretionary say in providing rather the authority to the governor to utilize 
those, those GRF funds, the general revenue. We only allow for the executive branch. We only, we only authorize them to, to spend it. If they're not required to spend the way that we authorize them to do. So that's also a key thing that there's a battle between getting things into the budget and GRF and, you know, organizations and advocates like, oh, I want this. And, and when we do, and it's signed into law, it's like, oh, yay, you know, there's some excitement, but then it's a reminder though, that's not the end of it. We have to make sure that, you know, there's an inside outside game of uh, holding the governor's uh, feet to the fire in his administration to make sure that they're spending it in that way as, as we authorize them to do. Thank you for the glossary aspect of this uh, discussion, but um, I, I really want to, you know, just thank you for spending some time with us and kind of breaking this down because, you know, a lot of the work that is coming out of the General Assembly is legacy building, right? You're looking back in terms of, okay, what didn't we do right or what still needs to get resolved? And then you're looking ahead, trying to predict in an informed way, if we make these adjustments and changes, could this improve the quality of life for residents in Illinois and particularly communities that have been historically marginalized? And so for that, we are forever grateful. And, you know, also you're a great storyteller. I've heard you use a lot of your personal stories and those of, you know, your constituents. And I think, you know, that is another really key piece in this work is to remember, you know, the humans behind all of our decisions. And it's not just data. It's not just, you know, wonky policy. It's really about individuals and their lived experience. And so, Thank you for joining us and indulging us in these questions and being able to also find the baby because that's our greatest expectation for you and all of the alumni who have come through the Academy. Thank you for listening to Get On The Early Childhood Bus Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive. 